Let's take our Bibles now and let's look at the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John together. We have been uh, looking at this book in effort to get to know Jesus better, that we might share Jesus with others. In May of 1965, a guitarist was in his hotel room in Florida named Keith when, when he heard in his mind a melody that he thought, I, I really need to put this down. And so he woke up, grabbed a guitar right beside his bed, and he, he played this eight-note rift into a, a tape recorder. And then he just went back to sleep. And shortly after that, he took that rift and he went to his good friend named Mick, who at the time was at the pool there in that hotel um, pool side. And he said, hey, check out this rift. And he played it for him. And Mick said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put some words to that. Well, that little rift and those little words became one of the classic rock and roll songs called I Can't Get No Satisfaction. That song and the woman at the well that we are going to look at in John chapter 4 have something in common. It has been said, and I believe the scriptures bear this out, that no one on their own seeks after God. God has to do a, a work in their heart for them to have their eyes open to see the value of a relationship with God. Having said that, I believe it could also be said of man and woman that there is a desire within them to seek the blessings that come from a relationship with God, like contentment, like fulfillment, like happiness, and like satisfaction. And to borrow the words from another old song, this woman was looking for love in what? All the wrong places. That's right. Today, we're going to look at John chapter 4, and we're going to allow this story to unfold one verse at a time. What I'm going to do is take a, a survey of this text, and then I'm going to back up, and we're going to look at some findings that come from these verses. So look with me now at John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now... When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Can I just pause here for a moment and look with me at verse 2, and you will see that John, or rather Jesus, did not baptize people, did he? Now, if one was made right with God through physical baptism, wouldn't you agree with me that Jesus would be all about baptizing people? And so we see here clearly that it is not. In verse 3, it tells us that he goes from Judea, which is in the south, and he wanted to go to the Galilee, which is in the north. It tells us here in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, a simple glance at your maps in your Bible would show you that Samaria is right in the middle. Maybe now would be a good time to give you a little history of that area, Samaria. Those of you who know a little history of the Bible, and the, the nation of Israel, you know at one time, under David's reign, this was a unified kingdom. But because of the hardness of heart of God's people, eventually this kingdom was divided into a northern kingdom 
and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was comprised of ten tribes, the southern two tribes. And because of their idolatry and a hard seeking after their own ways, God allowed the northern kingdom to be overtaken in the year 721 by the Assyrian army. They dragged God's people from Jerusalem, from the northern area, and back to Assyria, where in time they would intermarry with the Assyrians. And so the children were half Jews and half Assyrians. Hundreds of years passed, and the southern kingdom experienced the same idolatry. This time, God sent not the Assyrians, but the Babylonians. If you're reading through the scriptures with the church family, you've been reading in Jeremiah, and that's what Jeremiah is all about. The southern tribe being overtaken by the Babylonians. The Babylonians take God's people out, but instead of the northern kingdom where they intermarried, they actually remained pure. And so they were pure Jews. And in the north, there were these half-breeds, half-Assyrians and half-Jews. These half-breeds became known as the Samaritans. And there was a vicious rivalry between the two. In fact, in my readings this week, I, I learned that there were times where the Jews would go into the temple and pray, Oh God! Do not forgive the sins of the Samaritans. Or, oh God, when those Samaritans die, may they remain dead. Now that is a special level of hatred. And so many of the people at this time, instead of going through Samaria, the rabbis, the Jews, they would go around either the east side or the west side in order to get to Galilee. But Jesus is not one to adhere to the social ways, he went straight through Samaria. We see it now in verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Going back a little history now to the nation of Israel, I've heard this sung on Wednesday nights in recent weeks in Awana. There was Father Abraham. And he had many sons. And one of those sons was Isaac. One of those grandsons was Jacob. And Jacob had a son named Joseph. Jacob had given this field to Joseph. And there was a well there. And this well, you could see today, there's a massive Orthodox church that is built around this well. It says there that Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour, that would be noon on this day. We see the humanity of Jesus and that he is fatigued. He has been out ministering for four or five solid days. He's physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. The scripture says here in verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. You know, we look around our country today and we see a lot of polarization, do we not? You have political views over here on the right. You have political views over here on the left. And there is not a lot of conversation that is taking place between the two of them. 
I would come across a little survey that was conducted by the American Enterprise Institute in June of this year. And they asked people who identified with the Republican Party, how many of you have at least one friend that is a Democrat? Only 53% of them said that. And so then they went to the Democrats and they said, how many of you have at least one friend that is a Republican? And only 32% of them said that they had a friend that was of the other political party. Well, polarization took place even in the first century, maybe not around political lines, but here we see them in racial lines. And one thing that we can gather from this passage is Jesus being willing to cross over and enter into a conversation and relationship with someone that was very different than himself. It says there in verse 9, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. He had asked for a drink, and it was taboo at this time for a Jew to drink out of the same cup of a Samaritan. Jesus said in verse 10, Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. One of the men in our history, Jesus, was Jacob. He provided this well for his son, Joseph, and it's been feeding the people and feeding the flocks for all these thousands of years. You're not better than he is, are you? Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This water is a lot better water than what Jacob has provided over the generations. This is a living water. Look what it says there in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now listen, if we were doing an evangelism training at this point, and we had extended an invitation to receive this satisfied life, to to drink from this eternal water, and there was a person that says, will you please give this to me? What would we do? Would we not take out a, a track, something like this, where there's a, a sinner's prayer on the back and say, here, we'll just, just repeat these words right here. Will we not reach in and, and grab our bulletin and say, hey, there's a, there's a connection card here. Uh, fill this out and, and put it in an offering plate. And, and that way we can have someone follow up with you and, and we can baptize you. But what is it that Jesus did? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come to her. Come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. If you are at a park bench and you had a friend that was sharing the gospel with another person, and they said, I want this life. 
I want to drink from this eternal well. And your friend said, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Yeah, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What would you do? Would you not say, that's cold? You might even kind of slap them up beside the head. What are you doing? They want this life. But here's the truth, loved ones. In order to experience this eternal life, this satisfied life, you have to renounce your sinful ways. You have to confess your sin. And this is where Jesus is taking this woman. And so she says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Translation, you've just read into my soul. You've read into my heart. You've read into my life. And you can see right through me. You are correct. Now, in the next several verses, many commentators or maybe Bible students will say what she is doing is she's going to try to change the subject and get get the conversation off of herself. And that certainly could be. I personally tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. And it could be that what this woman is doing is saying, yes, I want this living water. Yes, I am a sinner. Now, how can I get it? So she's going to start taking the conversation to worshiping in a temple. Maybe she thinks that in order to do that, you have to go to a temple, a place of worship. So it says here in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The Samaritans had their own temple. It was different than the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Verse 22 says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is saying that this eternal life, this satisfied life, finds its lineage in Father Abraham. And that ancestry, that is traced all the way up to Jesus himself. Verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not so much about the externals of what temple you go to. It's about worshiping God as he is. It's about worshiping him as revealed by the scriptures. It's about bringing your authentic life before him and availing yourself to him. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. What's remarkable about this is that as a Samaritan, she would not have believed in the Messiah. But the light of revelation that was made light to her in her heart had revealed this to her. And she said, there will be one that will come and he will provide the life. He will provide the forgiveness of sins. He will provide the satisfied life for me. Then in verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And you'll notice those two words, I M, which links him back to Exodus 3, where he identifies himself as God. It is remarkable, isn't it, loved ones, that he did not do this to John the Baptist in John 1, nor the disciples, his disciples that he called in John 1. 
He did not do this at the temple in, in John 2. He did not do this to Nicodemus, the moral and religious one in John 3. But he reveals himself to this outcast, this woman who has had five husbands. It's there the first time where he says, I am. Then we see in verse 27, the disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or where are you talking? Why are you talking with her? I think in the Greek, it might say something like, whoa, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you talking to a woman from Sychar? Verse 28 says the woman left her water jar. Evidently, she now had the living water and she didn't need it anymore and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, if the men, the people in this community are anything like us, I suspect there was a cynical smile and a tone to their voice when they looked at each other and says, wait a minute, haven't we heard this before? Come, meet a man that I've met. We've met five of these characters. There was Henry, there was Sam, there was Francis, there was Bartholomew, and there was Carl, and now you want us to meet this guy? And I'm so grateful then, as they go into town, we have this emotionally charged scene, followed by, I think, a little humor. And that is with the disciples. Man, I'm so grateful for the disciples. I'm so grateful that the Bible provides some truth to how it really took place. Here you have this very insightful conversation that took place between this woman of sin and Jesus, God himself, that he reveals himself to her. And here you have the experts, the disciples. And let's listen to what they say to Jesus. Verse 31 says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food so that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Hey, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look! Assume now that the crowds of people from this village are coming back up to the well. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Loved ones, if ever there were a geographic location that would have been resistant to the gospel, that would have been resistant to a Jew, it would have been Sychar. And this is where the harvest is taking place. These people hated Jews. But this is where the harvest is taking place. And if it wouldn't happen there, could it not happen in your community, in your family, in your workplace, here in Brown County? Verse 37. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another weeps. I sent you to reap that which was for you did not labor. Others have labor and you have entered into that labor. Now, what he is saying is someone else was working this area before, preaching on repentance, preaching on a Messiah who would come. Who would that have been? We don't know. It could have been John the Baptist. It could have been one of his followers. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I'd ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, listen to this, the Savior of the world. This Savior is not just for the Jews, but he's a, he's a Savior for even us, Samaritans, even us, Gentiles, all of the world. Would you just give me some time now, and let's look at three different findings that come from this text. One, I think if we were to read this passage and say, what's the main point of this as it relates to the entire Gospel of John, I think we would say this, only Jesus provides the life that satisfies. As we look at this passage, and if maybe you've studied John chapter 3 with us a few weeks ago, you might say, hey, there are some parallels In John chapter 3, a person came out to meet Jesus. It was a man. In John chapter 4, there's a person that met Jesus. It was a woman. In John chapter 3, this was a Jew. In John chapter 4, it is a a Samaritan. In John chapter 3, this Nicodemus guy was religious and moral. In John chapter 4, this is an immoral woman. In John chapter 3, Jesus met this man at night. In John chapter 4, Jesus met this woman during the day. One was beloved, the other was an outcast, but here's what they both had in common. They were seeking a life that satisfies. When I looked at this passage this week, there were a few phrases that really stuck out to me. One of them was found in chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. I don't know if that's how you see Jesus. Ministering for the week, exhausted, a hot day at the noon hour there in this village. And he's like, I'm, I'm whipped. I, I am spent. Uh, man, why don't you go off and you get something to eat? I'm going to sit right here. He is weary. He is fatigued. I wonder how many of you this morning if you are honest, would say, I'm weary, I'm tired, I'm fatigued, physically, emotionally, spiritually. How many of you would say that by a raise of hands? I would think that almost all of us could identify with that. I find such encouragement here that in this woman who's had a lifestyle of a mess, despite being fatigued, Jesus enters right into the situation. Can I confess to you, there's been times where I've maybe been really, really tired, and I've kind of said to myself and to God, God, if this person comes and you want me to talk to them, I'm just going to rest on the doctrine of predestination. I'm just going to trust that you're just going to save this person because I, I, I don't have the energy to talk to this person right now. But here's the point, loved ones. As we look at this passage Jesus, in his weariness, enters into this conversation. One author by the name of Oswald Sanders, who is a Christian and writes on leadership, has said this, the world is run by tired men. Anne Ortland said, nowhere in the Bible are we told to slow down and take it easy. We are to press on, run with endurance the race. 
Galatians says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The commentator Ken Hughes said this, most souls are won by tired people. The best sermons are preached by tired men. The best camps are run by exhausted youth leaders. The third world is being evangelized by tired missionaries. Christian organizations are being run by tired men. You show me a super VBS and I will show you some tired women. We will never do great things for God until we have learned to minister even when we are tired. Now we have a Sabbath and it is a gift to us that is to replenish us. But our greatest rest and recreation will not be here, will it? It'll be in heaven. Here's a second thing I I see in this passage, and that is those who drink the living water are privileged to share it with others. Now Jesus, after the Gospel of John, he will ascend into heaven. But now he gives us, those who have thirsted and, and tasted of this living water, we have the privilege of sharing it with others. Look what it says there in chapter 4, verse 4. Here's another phrase that really struck out to me this week. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Now, we've already covered that it was unusual for a Jew, for a rabbi to do that. They would have gone around Samaria, either to the east or to the west. But he had to. What was it? It wasn't a geographic uh, compelling. It was a heart compelling that led him to do that. Do you have wells in your life? Do you have places outside the church building where there are people that you know at work, in your neighborhood, in your sports teams, at school, where you can meet and you have to, you have to share the truth with them? The truth is we never know what's going to happen Jesus had a huge advantage over us. He is God. I think it was John MacArthur said that he had to because he had a divine appointment with this woman at the well. When was this appointment set? Before the foundations of the earth. We don't know that. But there are people around the wells of our life. Here in Wisconsin, I think we appreciate the the ministry of Stuart Briscoe, who pastored down in Elmbrook in Brookfield, Wisconsin. There's a great story of a divine appointment of, of us not knowing when we share the gospel exactly what will take place. Stuart Briscoe had shared the story that he said when he was, now he was in England, when he was in Bible school, he and his wife were separated from each other for a day. He had let, left her the car. But he had accidentally taken the keys with him. And after a couple of hours, Jill borrowed another car. And as she was driving down the road, she saw some girls hitchhiking. She picked them up. And they turned out to be three German girls visiting England. She managed to persuade these girls to come with her to a conference for German Christian young people. And one of them was marvelously saved there. Briscoe would go on to tell the story of one of these girls. He said, she was a theological student in Germany. 
She had come under the influence of some teaching that, instead of leading her to an intelligent worship of God, had filled her with much doubt and confusion. She had delivered an ultimatum to the God whose existence she doubted. She told God that if he was there, he should show himself to her in some way. He must do this within three months. If he didn't, she told him, I'll quit my schooling, quit theology, quit religion, and I think I'm going to quit living because there's nothing to live for. After explaining this, she turned to my wife with great emotion and said, the three months ended today. We just don't know, loved ones. We just have to be obedient, don't we? Just to share the message with others. And just think with me for a moment how God took this one person in this community with with a fractured, sordid past, and from that one convert, an entire community was transformed. How has it happened in your life? How has it happened in your family? I can think of my own family. I was nine years old when my dad, gone through a second divorce, was going through a great amount of brokenness. And he met Jesus. And in meeting Jesus, he found a satisfying life of repentance and faith in what Jesus had done for him. And his life was changed radically, consistently for years to come. Now, I didn't live with my dad. We would visit him on holidays and some summers. But he impacted me and my older brother. And if it weren't for that, humanly speaking, would I be here before you today? With God's grace, trying to lead my wife and trying to lead my boys, my brothers over in Wyoming, trying to do the same thing, trying to live out the Christian life. We never know. I would say this, Highland Crest. It's our privilege to take this good message that we have been given to share it with others and what God's desire to do is to see the woman at the well, the man at the well converted over and over and over again to see their whole family change. And church family, you and I have the privilege of participating in that. And it's good for a church to see a new believer, isn't it? It's good for a church to see how the gospel weaves its way through the life of that church. But could I ask you a challenging question? Church member, if the woman at the well sat next to you next Sunday, now remember, she's been married five times. Remember, she's got a sordid past in which her mind and all sorts of things need to be unraveled. If she sat next to you, or if it was a man, and and that man sat next to you, brother, and asked, could I have your number? Could I text you? Could I call you? Would you be willing to make some time for me? Because I've got a lot of questions. Would you be willing to allow your need, maybe some of your comfortable lives, to be interrupted for such a person as that? And if not then what in the world are we doing here, right? This is why we exist. I believe that's what God wants to do at Highland Crest, is to have us go out and see lives transformed, to be willing to put in the hard work of spending time and and effort and interruption to help them along. Here's the third and final 
uh, truth that I see from this passage. And it may be the most convicting for me. And that is this. Once one has taken in the living water, a spring, the Holy Spirit, wells up within them. Will you look with me again at chapter 4, verse 14? Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring, a spring, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A couple of weeks ago, an 11-year-old boy stood behind me in the baptistry, and he was baptized. And we celebrated because we understood that this boy had turned from his sins. He had renounced his sins. He had been forgiven of them and been given this new, satisfying life. But it was not only that he was forgiven of his sins and was now a child of God, But what this verse is telling us is that there was a spring now that was in his heart, that was in his life. And what is that spring? We could look at another passage in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, where Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Listen to what verse 39 says. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. When that 11-year-old boy received Christ, if you've received Christ, when you received him, it was not just like a, a, a glance of water, like a gulp. Oh, that tastes really good. But the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life, and it is to flow through you. And I'm wondering if I were to sit down with you, mister, and sat next to your wife right now and said, hey, I'm just wondering, what's he like when he's not at church? What's he like when he's driving down the road or in his house when the doors are closed? What's he like when when something irritating comes across him? What's he like when he's interrupted? What's he like when there's pressures in his life? Is there things like self-control? Is there things like gentleness and faithfulness and goodness? Kindness, patience, peace, joy, and love? Is that flowing from his life? Or if I were to turn and and say, uh, may may I ask you some questions, widow, widower? Uh, What's your life really like? Is there evidence of faithfulness? Is there evidence of love and, and patience and goodness in your life as well? Is the Spirit of God flowing through your life. The late Peter Marshall, an eloquent speaker, and for several years, the chaplain of the United States Senate used to tell the story called The Keeper of the Spring about a quiet forest dweller who lived high above the Austrian village along the eastern slope of the Alps. The older gentleman had been hired many years ago by a young town council to clear away the debris from the pools of water up in the mountain crevices that fed the lowly spring flowing through the town. With faithful, silent regularity, he patrolled the hills, removed the leaves and branches, and wiped away the silt that would otherwise choke and contaminate the fresh flow of water. By and by, the village became a popular attraction for vacationers. 
Graceful swans floated along the crystal clear spring. The mill wheels of various businesses located near the water turned day and night. Farmlands were naturally irrigated, making the view from restaurants picturesque beyond description. Years later, one evening, the town council met for its semi-annual meeting. And as they reviewed the budget, one man's eyes caught the salary figure being paid to the obscure keeper of the spring. He said to the keeper of the purse, Who's this old man? And why do we keep, on, keep paying him year after year? No one ever sees him. For all we know, the strange ranger of the hills is doing us no good. He isn't necessary any longer. By a unanimous vote, they dispensed with the old man's services. For several weeks, nothing changed. By early autumn, the trees began to shed their leaves. Small branches snapped off and fell into the pools, hindering the rushing flow of sparkling water. One afternoon, someone noticed a slight yellowish-brown tint in the spring. A couple of days later, that water was much darker. Within another week, a slimy film covered section of the water along the banks, and a foul odor was soon detected. The mill wheels moved more slowly. Some finally ground to a halt. Swans left, as did the tourists. Clammy fingers of disease and sickness reached deeply into the village. Quickly, the embarrassed council called a special meeting, realizing their gross error in judgment. They hired back the old keeper of the spring, and within a few weeks, the venerable river of life began to clear up. The wheels started to turn, and new life returned to the hamlet in the Alps once more. The story provides a picture, doesn't it? The springs, there's nothing wrong with the springs. The springs kind of represent the Holy Spirit that, that wants to flow. The town represents our lives. The river represents our heart. And that if we are not maintaining what's going on in our heart, we can allow silt, we can allow branches and leaves and debris and dead animals and all of that will disrupt the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The old man represents God in this metaphor. We are to come to him and say, would you help clean, clean my life, clean my heart? Loved ones, how is the flow of the Holy Spirit in your life? As you read this passage today and you read about that there is to be a spring that flows from your life, if you've had this satisfied life, is it evident in you? Or is it down to a slow trickle? Or is what's coming out of your life contaminated because of some compromises, some grudges, some immorality, some unforgiveness, some laziness? I can think of my own life, and I can think, is, is, how's the flow going? And there's times where in my, my own relationship with my wife, I was relating this to the deacon retreat, right? Come home from the men's retreat, just grumpy. Like, if ever there sh I should be on a spiritual high, I came back just grumpy about something. And there was something between my wife and I, I said, I, I just, I, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm acting like this. Will you please forgive me? 
I can think of times where I have my day off with the boys. And, and here I am reading my Bible on my lap. And on the other side of the wall, the boys are doing school. And, and they're not doing it the way that I think they should do it, not quiet and orderly. So let me set my Bible down and let me so bark orders out to them. All the while damming up the flow of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I, I confess to you times there's, I, I don't think I would say this out loud, but in my attitude of my heart, I'm saying things like, God, why are you allowing this stuff to happen in my life? I could do this better. And there's this complaining spirit. And all this adds silt. All this disrupts the flow of the Holy Spirit in my life. I wonder if you would be willing to do what I did this week. I got on my knees and one by one, I said, God, how is the, the, the flow of the Holy Spirit? Is it really a spring in my life this week? And just began to confess sin. I want your spirit to be in my life. I've got boys. I've got a wife that I'm responsible for. And the devil is on an all-out onslaught against them, as he is you and your families. I need the spirit's power in my life, and you do too. And we need, we need to humble ourselves and say, clean my life. I need your power restored in my life. I need that patience. I need that love. I need that joy. Now, what I know about you, what I know about me, and I know about this, is that it might look different for all of us, but we all need this. So, loved ones today, have you come and have you drank of this living water? And if so, is it truly a spring that is flowing out of your life? Or have you said to God, I'm done for a while? And as a while, things are polluted. And you can see evidence of that in your family. You can see evidence of that in your workplace. We can see evidence of that in our country, can we not? Oh, how we need to return and say, God, help me. Help us. Restore the flow of your blessing to us. Let us pray today that one by one we would clean up the debris that we have allowed in our life. Now here's what we're going to do. You see we have the Lord's Supper today. I think it's going to be a great time for us to take the Lord's Supper. But before we do this, let's just have a prayer meeting. And the altar is going to be available to anyone that wants to come and say, God, you're dealing with me about some branches and leaves and debris I've allowed in my life. It's clogging the flow of the Holy Spirit. I need to get that right, right now, before I take the Lord's Supper. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that. Miss Jean, why don't you come and you play? If, if there's not enough room here at the altar, there's room here on the front row for some. And let's just have a prayer time together to say, I need your power. I have allowed things into my life that have slowed the flow of the Holy Spirit. And let me get that right today. Father, I pray as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we would be able to take a look at our own hearts and ask ourselves this honest question. Is it true? Is it true that the Holy Spirit is like a spring in my life that is flowing in every area? And if not... May we come and may we get this right. Could it be that one of the reasons that our effect is so, our witness is so weak is that the flow is so weak. Lord, may that flow 
be replenished. May we be completely open and transparent before you, that your power would be restored in our life, in our family's life, in the life of the church, that we would be the light that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.